right, let's just start by reading Matthew chapter 18. And, and literally, I may just stop along the way. So just keep your finger on the text and let's just look at it together. So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, that's presumptuous. But you got to remember that in those days, everybody expected Jesus and any religious leader to assume the throne of David. And so they were all assuming that because he'd handpicked them, they were going to be his right-hand men. You know, they were going to be particularly useful. And here's what Jesus does in reply. This is so powerful. He doesn't answer their question. He just calls over a little child and he puts them in the midst of them. And he says, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, many people read that as Jesus is telling us to be childlike, you know, overly simple. And that's not really what he's saying. He's talking about humility. And uh, believe it or not, we don't start getting a little uppity and full of ourselves until, oh, probably adolescence. That's when we start to, to, to jockey for position in the social order of things. And we start, you know, that's when, and I mean, it started a little earlier for, for me, but you know, that's, that's when you find out that you're always the last one picked for kickball or something like that. And it starts to grate on you, you know? So what he's talking about when he talks about being childlike is before that, before that. Um, when my son Jonathan was three years old, I remember this morning where and this was long before ministry, and I, I was getting ready for, I don't know what I was getting ready for. It must have been a Saturday, I guess, because I was making coffee, and I think I was going to make breakfast, and I heard him back there in his bedroom trying to whistle. You know, he hadn't quite figured it out. He was only three years old, and he was just going, <laughs> but he was trying really hard, and he was just, his eyes twinkled, and he was just happy, and, and, and I looked down the hall, and there he was darting back and forth between his room and the, in the, uh, in the bathroom in his birthday suit, you know, just getting his life on par. And then finally he comes out and he's got his favorite shorts on and his cowboy boots with no socks and a little tank top. And he's got a day of play ahead of him. He's got big plans for his day. The star glider's out there in the backyard waiting for him to go wherever, whenever. And then he fixes some cereal and sits down at the table to eat it. And he looks up at me, he says, Dad, I'm going to be a cowboy when I grow up. And then he says, what are you going to be? <laughs> this is a true story. And this is my honest to goodness reply. I was so touched in that moment. I just looked at him and said, I just want to be like you. And it's true. You know, it's true. This is what Jesus means when he says, unless you come to me like a little child, the kingdom of heaven is always going to be very difficult for you to enter. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
You know, Frank Viola and I talked a lot last week. I mean, a lot. I didn't sleep much, but it was all worth it. And one of the things we talked about is, is that you are grateful when God calls you into some sort of public ministry. And, and it's gratifying to know you're influential, but it's terrifying to think you're influential, you know? It really is that, that if you don't go into a job like this or something like what he does, or even if you're teaching a Sunday school class or, or just teaching your own children, you have to do it with this humility. You have to do it in a way that says, this isn't about me, my job is to point you towards Christ. And if you go into it with that attitude, you're probably gonna be okay, but you have to check yourself constantly. This is why I always say, don't take yourself too seriously. That's because everybody I've ever seen make a spectacular failure of ministry, at least, was somebody who took themselves too seriously. You never lose sight of who this is really about, ever. But you also need to remember this passage. I consider standing in the pulpit talking to you like I am right now to be a very holy and sacred thing, not because of some religious tradition, but because of this passage that I just read. Because Jesus says, if you mislead my children, it's not going to go well for you. And I take that very seriously. And that's why I ask you, you know, check me on my facts. Check the scriptures and see if you see what I see. Don't just take my word for it. And for goodness sakes, don't put me on a pedestal because I happen to have a little bit more education and a little bit more uh, communication skill or whatever you want to call it. Because at the end of the day, you just, I don't want you to see me. I want you to see him. I want you to hear him. That's why we pray that prayer of illumination. Lord, let them hear your voice. And if I'm a vessel to pour it out, then thank you for using a cracked pot. I mean, really. Verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if, you hand, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life one eye, with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hellfire. Now, he's laying the groundwork here for what he's about to say. So pay attention to the fact that this is more pertinent if you pay attention to what comes next. But we can at least accept the fact that there are certain times when our bad habits and our physical and emotional weaknesses continually take us into trouble. Ask anyone who has won over alcoholism and they will tell you that they are always an alcoholic, but they will keep that alcohol out of their lives. So they recognize that they have this weakness that they can't overcome, but they've accepted the fact that the only way to overcome it or to resist it is to get it out of their lives. You know, I like to eat when I'm stressed out. Well, you know, the best way to quit overeating is get out of the kitchen, right? So you could take what Jesus is saying is just as simply as that. He's, he's saying, look, if you are in some way consistently tempted and then fail, 
you know, then you need to find a way to cut that, cut that off. You know, you got to cut it out of your life. As simple as that. And yet he's also talking about something much more severe. He's gone from saying to people who might have authority or, or presume to teach those who are humble and contrite and ready to hear the word of God. He says to them, look, if you mislead them, it's going to go badly for you. But then he goes right on to say, but I'm particularly concerned about the ones who deliberately deceive. Let's just stop and think about that for a second. And no, I don't want to talk about what we've been working through for the last few months and the little bit of work we still have ahead of us. But I will tell you that this is at the heart of the matter for me, that there are people who fly the banner of Christ and deliberately deceive. And I fear for them and I grieve for those that follow them where they're going. You know, I really do. I really do. And it's because Jesus has the authority to say this and mean it verbatim. He will be the one who comes back to execute judgment on the world. And that means that this is a dire warning to those who would deliberately deceive and divert people from the true Christ. Verse 10 says, see to it, oh, uh, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven there are angels always, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, I, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the, over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So again, he's using the child as an illustration, but he's talking about those who have humbly submitted themselves to God through Christ and put their faith in Christ. And, and so there's, there's times in your life when, you know, you feel taken advantage of and cheated and disrespected and even times in your life when you feel, um, there's a crude word that comes to mind that I can't think of a replacement right now, but sometimes you feel raped. You know, sometimes people have so severely abused you that it feels like you've been victimized in the most hideous way. And what Jesus is saying here is, you've got angels watching over you and they haven't missed it. Now I know that you and I would both like for that angel to intervene and stop the suffering. And well, let's just talk about children for a minute. Is there anything more heinous than abuse of children, trafficking and physical abuse and leading them into drug addictions and all manner of evil and, and taking children into such dark places. And I just can't think of anything more horrific than that. And I wish the angels would intervene in the midst of it all, and I don't know why they don't. 
But Jesus makes it really clear that there's a day of accounting that's going to come. And it's going to be severe. It's going to be severe. Then he goes into this uh, verse 15 of if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, note that he says, if your brother or sister, why do I call you family? Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, Because when we're born again in the Holy Spirit, it's the same Holy Spirit in you that's in me. It's the same blood of Jesus that saved me. And so that makes us family. If there was a way to do 23 in me or ancestry swabs or whatever for the Christian, we would all come back with the same results. We'd have the DNA of our Heavenly Father. And so we call each other family for that reason. So Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, talk to them about it. Talk to them about it, not talk about them to others about it. (laughs) I know that never happens in church, right? No, of course not. But it's scary to talk to the person that we don't agree with. Why is that scary? Could be because we feel that we're going to get an argument that we don't deserve. You know, we feel like we might get pushback that, you know, we just want to say what we want to say and be heard. And that's that. And for goodness sakes, don't argue with me about it. That's treating your brother or sister like a child and not in the spirit of the previous verses that we just read. And so if we're going to have a relationship that is like the bond of love among the Christian brothers and sisters, then we have to risk having difficult conversations about our differences of opinion. And if the world needed it, Before, it's never needed it more than it needs it now because even the church doesn't know how to have a civil conversation. (laughs) We got to be different. This Shiloh family is the place to start because here's where we are together in the name of Christ. So here at Shiloh, let us commit to having civil conversations about where we disagree. Let us commit to not talking about each other when that person about whom we're speaking isn't in the room. Let's talk to that person. Because Jesus says that's the first step. Then the next thing he says is bring a couple of trusted brothers or sisters into the conversation. And here's what he says, to check your assumptions. 
I don't want to make this personal, but I got to tell you, if there's one thing I've learned in my job is that the opposite of being put up on a pedestal is to have people who have already figured everything about you that they want to know to be true or to believe is true. In other words, people say things about me or, or assume things about me without checking their assumptions. And it's true in all of our lives. It just happens that in my position, there is such a consistent issue in every place I've ever served. There's one or two people that are just convinced that they got it all figured out, but they don't want to check their assumptions. And they don't, they don't do it. Jesus says plainly right here, if you've got a gripe with somebody in the brotherhood, the sisterhood of Christian family, you need to take a couple of trustworthy people, wise people with you and check your assumptions. I was in an interview once a long time ago. I told you a couple of weeks ago about how I decided to back out of the, the particular credentialing process with the United Methodist Church. And in that interview, there was a pretty severe group of people who were ideologically different from me, putting it mildly. But there was a person in the room who served as a proctor, and it was a person who said beforehand, I didn't know this until after the fact, but this person was assigned to my interview because this person was going to serve as my advocate because he knew me and you know, was going to protect me from unfair practices. And there were many times in that long interview when he would say, I'm going to have to say stop, answered, asked and answered. You know, he would say that over and over again. He said, you ask the question, he answered the question. The fact that you don't like his answer doesn't matter. He told you what you wanted to know. And so I can't tell you what a stressful process that was, but I can also tell you that it was a, a gratifying thing to have a wise, trustworthy person there to advocate for me, you know? Uh, and it, it, it didn't change my mind ultimately, but it did at least make me feel that there was, there was a, a, a fairness about that part that really meant a lot to me. And so when I read this passage, I think about what Jesus is saying. It's like when we have a gripe with one another in the church, we've got to take a couple of people and have a civil conversation where we test our assumptions and verify them. And you know, more often than not, I know it's this way with me, and I think there are people who can attest to this even in this room, but if you come to me and you tell me about an assumption and then I give you my response, if I find myself wanting, I will tell you. I will accept the conviction of the Holy Spirit and I will say, you know, I never looked at it that way before. I was wrong. Or I see now that because I didn't know what I didn't know, I missed something. You know, I mean, there's nothing humiliating about being confronted by loving people who simply want to bring out the best in you and create the best situation for serving the Lord together as the family of faith. And so there's nothing wrong with saying, well, now that you've pointed out these things that I was previously blind to, I'm grateful that you've helped me to see. Now let us go and worship the Lord. <laughs> you know, it's just a really powerful message. But you know what? There are times, as Jesus says in verse 16 and 17, now if that person won't listen, if they refuse to hear what you have to say, if they're resolute in their opposition to this whole process, then you might as well just walk away. You're not gonna change anybody's minds, you know? 
I posted something on Facebook this week. It's not original to me, but, but it was so profound in its humor. Basically, it said that, that uh, a certain chain of restaurants decided they wanted to compete with the popularity of McDonald's quarter pounders, so they offered a third pounder at a lower price. And the campaign failed because people kept thinking they were getting less. <laughs> Think about that, right? <laughs> and then it says at the bottom, and this is why I don't argue with people on social media. Now you can read that however you want, but all I'm saying is that some people are so sure they're right and so unwilling to check their assumptions that they end up making themselves look like fools. And you know, sometimes the best thing to do in that case is just walk away. Just walk away. Jesus is a little bit more severe in what he says here because he says, you know, now they're, they're, these last few passages really need some help and, and I'm trying to watch my time here, but isn't this fun? I hope you're having fun. I'm having ball. But Jesus he says, look, whatever you bind on earth. Now, that's been justification for certain doctrinal beliefs in certain religions. But, but really, what, what it means is, is that, that when you're brothers and sisters in Christ, you are, in effect, Christ. You're not as holy as he is. You're not as perfect and pure as he is. But when he says you're his body, he's not kidding around. And basically, what he's saying is there's continuity between the unseen realm where he per currently dwells and this temporal world where we dwell. He's, he's saying there's continuity. He's saying that, that whatever disruptions occur in the body of Christ on earth, they are felt in heaven. You see what I mean? And so you're not alone in this. If you're a truth seeker, if you're a grace seeker, and you genuinely serve Christ as your king, then for his name's sake, understand that whatever is happening on earth is carefully observed and actually participated in from heaven. Angels are watching over me. There's an old Amy Grant song, goes like, angels watching over me, every step I take. Okay. Then finally he says, Whatever you ask in my name, you'll get it. Boy, this one has been so misunderstood and misinterpreted over the years. If you ask Jesus for a million dollars and you get a couple of brothers and sisters to agree with you and you all say amen, you ain't getting it. And if you do, I'd be highly suspicious because there is an enemy who is delights in counterfeit stuff. Just remember that the enemy specializes in counterfeit Christianity. The enemy specializes in a tree that looks like the tree of life, but it's actually the tree that you're forbidden to consume from. Remember that the enemy, if he's not busy accusing you or God of something, then he's busy masquerading as something that looks close, but it's a counterfeit. No, what the Lord is saying here is that within the body of Christ, there's a unity of spirit, even with heaven, a holy communion with heaven and earth. And it is in that spirit that we see the presence of Christ in our prayers. And so if it's not holy in heaven, it's 
not holy on earth either. And if prayers and supplication are directed to the Lord in the body of Christ, then they are heard in heaven as well, in the body there, as well as the body on earth. And so when we're united in that body, glorious things do happen. Glorious and amazing, miraculous things happen every day. Just not usually exactly the way we expect. And so it is. Okay, I got to pick up the pace. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times that was prescribed by Jewish law. And Jesus said to him, I don't say seven times. I say 70 times seven. Well, the truth is, is what he said would have been just as easily described as 70 times seven squared or cubed or multiplied. In other words, you just keep forgiven. Now, this is a deeply troubling thing for Christians, but because I've talked about it with you a lot before, I'm not going to come back and re-preach that sermon, except to say that once again, we are reminded that forgiveness is like debt. We stay angry with people with whom we have a gripe, maybe a very justifiable gripe. But in the end, we're holding open a debt that they never can or will repay. Go back to what he said about the people you confront when there's evil in the church. Sometimes they don't see anything wrong with what they're doing. And if you're trying to get them to own up to it, you're just wasting a lot of precious time and energy on nothing. And other times, well, it's a little bit like this passage that we're going to finish with today. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. I did some research. A talent is about 20 years worth of wages. 10,000 talents is a debt you cannot repay. You just can't, especially as a servant. I don't understand how he ran up such a debt in the first place, but that's not the point of the story. And so Jesus said that uh, the master said that if he, was, if, he, if he couldn't pay up, that he and his children and, and wife were gonna have to be sold as payment. And so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt, forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a couple of days wages, maybe a week or two, we'll say. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him have patience with me and I'll pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he could pay the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have shown mercy to your fellow servant as I have shown mercy to you? 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also my family, my heavenly father will do for every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. (laughs) Please keep in mind that he told this story before he went to the cross, before a insight from the Holy Spirit came on the third day and made them understand what had been done. He's telling them right now beforehand exactly what he's getting ready to do. He's getting ready to cancel a debt we all owe God that is like the debt of that servant, impossible for us to repay. And he's saying to us, if I can forgive you out of pure love, grace, and mercy, then surely you can forgive in that same spirit. Is anybody holding a debt against someone right now? Is anybody feeling a little unforgiving? Afraid you're not going to get what you are owed? Afraid that the other person's going to go away thinking that they were right, even though they wronged you? Are you carrying a burden that belongs to the Lord? There's a word I want to share with you. Some of you may have heard it. It's called koinonia. This whole chapter is part of Matthew's discourse on what Jesus expects from his body, the church with a capital C, or the body of Christ. And this word is a der- derivative, that's tough to say, a derivative of several kind of phrases, but it comes down to this. It means a holy family of Christ, united by his love, living up to its potential. So everything we've been talking about is Jesus' personal instructions for you and me as the body of Christ. And even though I did not come into this with the intention of preaching more of the, you know, why we need to disaffiliate and why we need to do this and that, I didn't want to go into that. I didn't, didn't want to talk about being Wesleyan or anything like that. I had no intention of doing that. But if, if you hadn't noticed, the Lord has a way of showing up anyway. And here's what he's saying to us. There's nothing more important in this process of what we're doing together as a family of Christ than our unity. There's nothing more important than to embrace those who didn't agree with our decision. There's nothing more important than releasing any anger you're holding towards a decision that you didn't support. There's nothing more important than to let go of whatever assumptions you have about people around you in the body of Christ or have them tested and settle it once and for all and cancel that debt. There's nothing more important in the life of the body of Christ here at Shiloh than koinonia. A unity of purpose, a unity of communion with Christ's Holy Spirit in heaven and earth, and us moving in whatever direction he sends us forward as one body of Christ devoted to loving him with all our heart, mind, and soul, and then loving our neighbors likewise. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Please burn it into our hearts. Change us forever so that you'll be glorified and we will be the koinonia body of Christ you've called us to be. 
for those who are hard-hearted and stubbornly hanging on to stuff, but know that they want to let go. We ask that you help them to get out of the kitchen, to walk away from the bottle, to walk away from the circumstances that continually cause them to sin. Help them, Lord, to cut off what burdens them and stops them from being entirely devoted to you and your glory. They'll be whole in heaven and more perfected. And so this is what we pray. Amen. Thank you.